It's a leader's discovery that each child has something unique to contribute. Nobody looks for rewards, but you find them anyway in little things, in the creative ways the girls have used their everyday experiences. There's the fun of making things and the pride of showing what you've done. Do you get art? Uh, I am art. True. That's great. That was beautiful. I don't think I need to. I mm. think art is subjective. And so I say, that's cool. That's pretty. That's nice. And then I take a picture of it or I hang it. I get a print and I hang it up on the wall or I put it on my body permanently. I wish someday. Do you all want to go on the train of my thoughts? Of course mm-hmm. you do. Obviously. So you know, no, absolutely like... not. <laughs> We're going to kick you off the podcast because I'm obviously gonna we haven't right been we haven't been 30 episodes in and we we clearly this is the time. Episode 32. Haley, we don't care about your train. I mean, I've been trying to kick her off since episode <laughs> 1. So <laughs> um... Slash ass. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, like you just ask that question, do you get art? And we have a bunch of people with like modern art in particular being like, it's one color. It's a splash. I could do that. I honestly wonder, and let's take the Renaissance because like rebirth of culture, Mm -hmm. art, yada, yada. If people in the like Renaissance, because that was their modern art, if they were just going around being like, ugh so nasty i could redo that like i could do that myself my child no, the only people that. who could see art were rich and they wouldn't think of doing such a mundane task as making i art. understand that <laughs> completely as like the fellow archaeologist look at art classes with you unless they had still... a benevolent prince who set up but that's still where my life. brain goes is like because i consider myself a peasant so like i'm a peasant yes I agree. And I still go to museums. So like, could a Renaissance peasant get a whiff of some art and be like, my five-year-old could be doing that. Again, I told you it's a roller coaster. You all hopped on and strapped yourselves in. Well, okay. Here's the thing. I don't get, because like, I know some people like, I don't get modern art, right? And then they like try and trash on places like the Hirshhorn and like, whatever, teach their own. But I don't get, I don't get art. (laughs) I love women artists I love the artists I'm covering today I love going to art museums but I don't get it like I get that we enjoy it I get what Alana's saying like it's pretty you don't need to understand it but it's it's like something where my brain is like blocked when I try and read about art and I'm just like yes I completely agree with that yeah like my art no I don't think either of you were in my Roman art history class blanking on the professor's name but she had a really good way about looking about like Roman art and quantifying art, especially for people who have not studied art and the terminology that you pick three things, three things that seem similar for that time period. So like, is it a sculpture where sculpture is really popular? Um, what do the fate like facial features? And like, that's how we learn for like Roman hair, like the hairdos changed over like a few hundred years and so and then colors pick three things and then elaborate on those three things you don't need to use fancy words to describe art because like 
You put the word then juxtaposition. Why do, the, why do all the websites? I don't for art know. Museums I truly use this don't language that I literally, my brain shuts down. Like just completely like the words don't compute. I promise you, you throw the word juxtaposition in like a museum label and I'm going to be like awkwardly scooting away because it's just going to make me feel very weird. And I don't think I've actually read the word juxtaposition and understand dyslexic brain just can't comprehend. And that's also on accessibility. Yeah, Like when you use all this terminology and museum labels and on their websites. It's inaccessible in so many ways. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History. The good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. As always, it's Lexi. Lexi, what's your favorite painting? My favorite painting? Oh man, that's a tough one. I think my favorite painting is the portrait of Michelle Obama at the National Portrait Gallery. And Haley, what's your favorite art style? I think it has to be magic realism. And I'm Alana and you are an artist. By Sarah Yuri Screen is available wherever books are sold. Because, okay, have you guys read the whole thing? Like, why are there no great women artists in this piece? No. Yes, I think I told you that we had to, for, it was assigned reading for, program, for right? my women's leadership program. Yeah. So, like, Which I did not appreciate while I was in it, but now I'm like, this is pretty cool. <laughs> if you haven't read it, go read it. It's old. It's kind of out of date. There's a lot of things that it sh- someone should write an updated version. But the thing that it got me thinking about, I really wanted to find someone who does like fiber arts or like an art traditionally associated with women who's like doing something that like we consider like modern art. I mean, I think my lady kind of borders on that because she plays with a lot of mediums, but I really wish I could have found like, you know, someone who's like knitting, not the lady who knits out of her vagina. I I respect her, but I don't want to talk about her. I call myself a fiber artist. You are. I am. Yayue Kusama was born in Matsumoto, Japan in 1929. World War II shaped her early years and left a lifelong impact on her. At just 13, she began working in a military factory sewing parachutes for the Japanese army. And she has said in interviews that she recalls air raids occurring every day while she was working in the factory, with American planes constantly looming overhead. As a young artist, she studied Nihonga, a traditional Japanese style of oil painting, and this is a very like hyper-realistic oil painting. It's similar to Western oil painting, but it's like a Japanese version. She found success at this, and she began having solo exhibitions in Japan. And in 1957, she became interested in abstract expressionism, which is very different from what she was originally doing, but it sparked her interest. And the style was gaining popularity at the time in the United States. And she felt that Japan's culture and position on women's expression was really restricting her creativity and that she needed a space where she could grow creatively. So she moved to America, where her art evolved dramatically. And she lived in Seattle for one year. Then in 1958, she moved to New York. 
Kusama's art has been largely inspired by her mental illness, and she's very public about this. Her first major series in New York City was Infinity Nets, which referenced her hallucinations in which she was overcome by an endless sea of netting. Her work in New York, along with her eccentric personality, caused her to become well-known in the avant-garde scene of the city. And in the early 1990s, Kusama earned the distinction of being the first solo artist to represent the nation of Japan at the Venice Biennial. Her art has been featured in many museums, including, but not limited to, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Tate in London, and the Whitney Museum in New York. In 2012, she collaborated with famous fashion brand Louis Vuitton to turn some of her iconic work into wearable art. And you can still buy this. Um, you can, it's secondhand now, but you can buy her art turned into like bags and shoes. It's Louis Vuitton. But if, if you can pay up for it, you can wear her art. Pieces inspired by her hallucinations, this time influenced by her visions of dots, became viral social media sensations in the last 10 years. Her installation of infinity mirrors at the Hirshhorn Museum was intended to make the viewer forget their own sense of self and be embraced fully by the art. Infinity mirrors was displayed alongside the obliteration room, a piece that was started in 2002 but is continually altered by visitors who place stickers of dots onto the existing artwork, which is a plain white room that's then covered in dots. An aftermath of obliteration of eternity is an LED light display that uses mirrors to create dots. And all the eternal love I have for the pumpkins, great title, Kusama's iconic pumpkin focused piece, they were all on display in this exhibit as well. And then some of her other pumpkin statues have since been put on display at the Hirshhorn as well. And then this exhibit was intended to like travel around and it got to some places, but it was supposed to keep continuing to travel through 2020. And then things got a little messed up with the pandemic. So I'm actually not sure where those rooms are installed at this exact moment or if they're in transit. And when you listen to this, you might not listen to it on the day that it came out, so it might be somewhere new completely. So feel free to Google Infinity Mirrors. It'll come up and you'll know where it is currently installed. Could be anywhere in the world right now. The other amazing thing about this exhibition in particular was that Kusama and Hirshhorn collaborated to make the space accessible, particularly for individuals in wheelchairs because Kusama herself sometimes uses a wheelchair. And by producing the virtual reality version of the art, they were able to like have people put on headsets and experience the rooms in 3D virtually so that they wouldn't need to physically go through the room since they can be difficult to navigate in a wheelchair. So basically they made a, a version everyone could enjoy. I actually didn't get to go see this even though famously I lived in DC while it was happening. It was basically always sold out and you needed a time ticket to get in even though it was free. So most of us who lived in DC in 2017 did not see it. So don't ask us. We're probably still butthurt about it because all these people went there just to get their social media Instagram shots and us who are actual Kusama fans did not get to appreciate it, but it's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. I wouldn't even have taken a selfie. Okay. Maybe I would have taken one. I think but. it was like an extra credit for one of my classes and the professor saw that like it was just unattainable for us to do and it was replaced with a different extra credit. The professor should have gotten you all in like after hours right come on man okay Kusama's art is very personal I think that's part of why I really like it and she has said that it is made for herself first and foremost and at many times it is just for her and she doesn't care what other people think so the fact that it's become wildly popular doesn't phase her and she's even surprised sometimes about how popular it's become and I love that I think that's why it's popular because it's like she was like eh, 
I don't care if people like it or not. It's for me. And then everyone's like, wow, <laughs> wow, that's so cool. You're so cool. There's so much more detail that I could cover about her because I could have done like a whole story on her position in the mental health community. And I could have done a whole story like just on art pieces that she's done in the history of the art she's created. But this is just meant to be like a brief overview. And I really think just in general, how public she is about her mental health and her, her struggle with mental illness is super important. And it's certainly helped others facing similar things feel comfortable expressing themselves through all kinds of art, whether that's physical mediums or other things. And um, you know, I barely scratched the surface here of her. So if you're interested, I highly suggest you explore her artwork on your own. And there are lots of digital exhibits and also videos of exhibits on her work, as well as interviews where she talks about her life. They are in Japanese, but they're translated with captions. And I'll have Alana link that in the show notes because that's in my further learning. And I'll put I'll put a YouTube playlist together on our YouTube channel too, if that's what you're into. But yes, that is that is my lady. Great way to plug that we have a YouTube channel. Yes, thank you. We I make playlists for every episode. Yeah, we're all up to date. I do them. So Frida Kahlo, I know I say this once in every blue moon, I could do like hours and hours of content. And for Frida, boy, howdy, could I? So this might be a little longer than my traditional. I am so sorry, Lexi, for editing. However, I just could not help myself. Don't worry, I'm not going to waste your time talking about Coco or the movie adaptation called Frida. That could be Patreon. Subscribe to our Patreon and maybe it'll be there. What are you talking shit about, Coco? No, I love Coco, but I just okay. couldn't. There was not enough Frida content in there. I also oh, I told see. you I talk about her relationships, so I had to pick one or the other. Coco's one okay. of my top fave movies in the oh, world. Oh, it's so good. It's like, so good. Again, Join us on the Patreon, Patreon for museums. No, not museums, for movies and mimosas, where we talk about movies. We just did Jojo Rabbit. Maybe we'll do Coco. I don't know. Maybe we'll do something else. We're also definitely going to do The Mummy at some point. And it's just going to be me talking again. Basically, this Patreon series is Alana's favorite movies. (laughs) Yes. Welcome to Alana's favorite movies. As I talked about magic realism being my fave, her paintings are known to be in the category of surrealism or magic realism. So magic realism is capturing both like real objects, events, people, but with a dreamlike or fantastical overlay of it. So my favorite example is the two Fridas, the 1939 two Fridas, where it's two Frida Kahlo's and you see like the anatomical heart shared between them. So obviously she did not have an identical twin. There are no two Frida Kahlo's but it was clearly her, you can Google it. It's not in her public domain, so it probably will not be on our website or on our Instagram or stuff. But Google it, you can see that Frida's self-portrait of her is very anatomically correct, very surrealistic, but then the magic of it, of her holding her own heart is something that can't really happen. 
I know I speak Spanish, but my Spanish accent's not great. So please don't laugh at me too. And the world, our listeners. For Magdalena, Carmen, Frida Kahlo y Calderon, while childhood is a huge important to a person's history, it's not super relevant to my three stories that I've expertly curated for you. So the highlights. At six years old, she contracted polio, which caused her right leg to remain shorter than her left. And this also kind of was like the start of many health issues. Side note, my right leg is longer than my left. So we have the opposite. And that's on scoliosis. She was very curious and a fast learner as a child. And while she was very like self-taught for art and painting for the most part, her father did see this spark in her and a family friend kind of gave her a few lessons. At 18, she was in a horrible accident where a streetcar crashed into the bus she was on. That also, like I said, with polio compounded on that, that was an awful accident because it fractured many bones and even her spinal cord was damaged. Um, And she was bedridden for quite some time after that. So now our first story titled Art, Draw What You Know and Construct Your Own Identity. So as Lexi was saying, for her gal, Frida is in the same camp of being a big believer in creating art based on your own reality and making art for yourself. She's known for surrealism and magic realism, and she definitely used magic realism to portray her own identity. So like I said, with the two Fridas, other self-portraits of hers have elements where you're just like, that's not humanly possible but I have a portrait or a magnet of her with like a monkey on her shoulder and the monkey's like perfectly posing. Monkeys can climb on people's shoulders, but just like the aura of the whole portrait has the magic to it. And this concept also leads into our second chunk of goodness, which is her love life called Love Life, a true bi icon. So I'm gonna put an asterisk here. I could not find anything where she called herself or identified herself as bisexual. Only every other museum, news outlet, blog called her a bi icon, but she has been open about her sexuality being very fluid in the sense of liking both male and female. But again, bi icon, we love it. Even I think the Frida Kahlo Museum called her bisexual. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll with it. So like her most notable relationship was her on and off relationship and marriage with Diego Rivera, who's also a famous artist. He's also in a lot of her work in the SF MoMA. I think it's a Diego painting that it's both Diego and Frida, but also I think another painting by Frida is also Diego and Frida captured in one image. So it's actually cool to see the compare and contrast of their two styles because he's also a surrealist. The De Young Museum for the Frida Kahlo exhibit they have, they called their... Uh, relationship unconventional and tumultuous, which I just love. And I want to talk about an even spicier relationship, one with Leon Trotsky, Russian Marxist revolutionary and political theorist and or politician. Alana, are you with me here? I always forget about the Trotsky thing. Yes. Go. Oh, I came to play. I came to play, ma'am. So although it only lasted a few several months, it was like a whirlwind romance that was hot and heavy and in the freedom way influenced her art in every way possible. 
So they first met in 1937. She was 29. He was 57. I'm here for the age difference. It was just noted everywhere. So like, I'm going to note it here now. Frida and Diego were very vocal supporters of Marxism and on and off members of the Mexican Communist Party for about a decade. Diego actually had a mural that was like in 1928, where Frida was wearing a shirt with the red star symbolizing her activism within the Communist Party. They considered themselves Trotskyites. Like, you know how you have like the Swifties? It's called like Trotskyites. Trotskyites. I don't know. Reading that just looked really weird. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Alana's cracking up. They're Swifties for communism. I don't know how else to put it. Also, side note, Diego was the one who convinced the Mexican president at the time to offer a Trotsky political asylum in Mexico. And then they offered their house in Mexico. So... When Trotsky and his wife settled in Mexico, they were in their house and Frida and him started their like relationship. They would write flirtatious love notes. They would put them in books. I was known that like Trotsky definitely did this to Frida. Like he would leave the love notes in books that he would then like lend to her. And then she would also give him paintings. Like one was a self-portrait and he actually hung it up in his office. Spicy, spicy. And now as we're rooshing down this roller coaster of mayhem, we come to our third and last story called Affairs, Communism, and Jail Time. So while this uh, relationship ended in friendship, it also landed Frida in jail. In 1940, Mexico City police suspected Frida to be an accomplice in the murder of Trotsky, and he held Frida and her sister, Christina, in jail for questioning for about two days. So Trotsky was murdered by Ramon Mercader, who was an undercover agent working for Stalin with an ice pick. Frida actually met Ramon in Paris the previous year. Thus, Frida could have been like a suspect in questioning. They also knew that they had the affair together. Trotsky and Frida also had their like Diego and wife. So they were thinking, hmm, lover quarrel? But alas, no, it was not a lover quarrel. And they caught Ramon. So they let Frida go. And she somewhat immediately after being released went to see Diego in San Francisco. And when like doing research, it seemed that like Diego hightailed it out of Mexico when like Trotsky was murdered. So I'm thinking like Diego immediately thought he was going to be a suspect because like that's what like when reading it, it made it seem. And I vaguely remember this PBS documentary where they were talking about it. They were kind of alluding how like things were lining up too well for like Diego getting this like mural Trotsky dying and blah, blah, blah. So like Frida did have to spend some time in jail, which sucks. Oh, tricks. I have a closing story. So one of my favorite fun facts about Frida is that she arrived to her like first solo exhibition in an ambulance and had a stretcher wheeled in so she could surprise her guests, be involved, and not her being disabled, hold her back. But it was a solo exhibition. So super important night for her. Basically, everyone was told that she wouldn't be making an appearance opening night. But she got the ambulance, told the ambulance, hightail it to the exhibition, and truly had the stretcher roll up into the exhibition so she could like greet people, still be a part of the night. That kind of like my circle back to how she made her art part of her reality. And that's Frida.
in a nutshell. I Are you it. ever going to forget that I said this Swifties equivalent of communism? Swifties? No. no, absolutely not. Swifties, but for Trotsky. Pamela Coleman-Smith was born February 16th, 1878, which makes her, holy shit, you guys, an Aquarius, just like me. Finally, we're 30-something episodes in, and she's my first Aquarius. She was born in London, but her parents were Americans, and I'm not really sure what they were doing in London besides being expats and having influential friends. Pamela also spent a lot of her childhood in St. Andrew's Parish, Jamaica, which possibly inspired her love of folklore. It is possible her mother was Black. Her father was definitely white, and Pamela was often read as Black or Japanese throughout her life. Actually, in further learning, I have included an article about the erasure of Black women in occult history. Give me a second to get to the why Pamela is occult history. Uh, I will get there. It's fun. When Pamela was 15, she started studying at Pratt Institute, which was only a couple years old at the time. Um, And she was kind of considered a prodigy, but she left without a degree in 1897 after a string of illnesses and her mother's death the year before. So she moved back to London with her father and started working as an illustrator, most notably for William Butler Yeats. Also in London, she fell in with the bohemian scene, and after her father's death when she was 21, she moved in with her friend and idol, Ellen Terry, who was an actress at the Lyceum Theater, and she called Pamela Pixie, which is kind of cute. They were friends with people like Bram Stoker, which is pretty cool. In 1903, she started, or she tried to start a newspaper, magazine, literary journal, art scene kind of combination thing, really more like a literary journal. Uh, called The Green Sheaf, which was dedicated, quote, to pleasure in all of her various art forms, watercolor, writing, performing. She combined her fascination with Irish folklore and Jamaican folklore. And now I'm going to get into her as an occultist. So we're going to jump back in time just a little bit to 1901, when Pamela joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, where W.B. Yeats was already a member. And it was all about ritual and scholarship and metaphysical knowledge but there were a bunch of initiation phases uh and pamela only got past the second one so she kind of like stayed in the outskirts uh but in 1903 the order split and some people followed arthur Waite to focus on strictly christian mysticism and some people followed yeats guess where pamela went yeats she did not go with Yeats. She went with Wait for the Christianity aspect, probably, because she ended up converting to Catholicism in 1911. You would think that she would go with Yeats, who, like, gave her a start and a foothold in the that's, that's London Bohemian went. scene. Tricks are for kids. But it ends up being fine for her, so hold on. And so Arthur Waite recruited her to be the artist for his tarot deck. And he was very specific about the major arcana. Those are the cards that are, like, the star and death and the lovers, and the hermit, and I, I could keep going, and kind of left the minor arcana, which are the cards that are like Ten of Pentacles, Ace of Wands, Queen of Swords, up to Pamela. Many of the people on the cards are based on the people that Pamela knew, like William Irving and the previously mentioned Ellen Terry. And the figures 
on the cards are pretty androgynous, which could be indicative of her own queerness. Like we've said before, assigning sexuality to people of the past can be iffy, but she did live with her gal pal Nora Lake for like 20 or 30 years. Never got And they were roommates. Oh my God, they were roommates. And her friend Edith Craig was an out lesbian. And obviously the gays like to hang out with the gays. So I would vibe with, I would absolutely. Unless you're Haley. All the gay friend groups. I told Robert my gal pal and he doesn't get it yet. (laughs) Stop being the gayest straight I know. Yeah. Friend groups don't have a token gay. Gay friend groups have token straights. And that's what Haley is for us. And it's fine. Was that a bad thing, though? No, we love you. We love you so much, Haley. Look, I have um, a lot of problems with my sexuality and gender. I'm working through them. It's okay, honey. We we love you no matter what, obviously. But Pamela kept painting and writing and including designing some pre-war women's suffrage posters. She died in 1951 with no money and her grave isn't even marked. So who knows where she is or how she died or what day or anything. And she's kind of been lost to history until very recently. Like the first real good biography of her was only published in 2018. Link in further learning, of course. And I wish I had had time to like get it from the library and actually read it. But that's for after final project season is over. And then the Pratt Institute libraries did a temporary exhibit on her work in 2019. But like the Rider Waite tarot deck is the epitome of tarot everywhere. And the most prevalent one and everyone who designs their own deck is inspired by hers. And she was basically paid nothing for it. Like I couldn't find an amount. It was just that it was like a little bit like she called it a huge job for very little, a very big job for very little pay, I think. And also like, who the fuck is Ryder? That person did not come up in my research of Pamela. So I I did find a website that uses... (laughs) (laughs) That uses astrology to try and prove that Pamela and Edith hooked up. That's amazing. Oh my God. No, send it. You can include that in further learning. I'm going to put it. I'm literally going to put it in further learning. I'm copying it. I'm putting it in my notes. I'm going to put it in further learning. Oh my goodness. Incredible. I just want to end with a quote from her 1908 article, Should the Art Student Think? That works for viewing art and for reading tarot. She says... Use your wits, use your eyes. Perhaps you use your physical eyes too much and only see the mask. Find your eyes within. Look for the door in the unknown country. And that's Pamela Coleman-Smith. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes, a transcript of this episode, and our merch will be on ladyhistorypod.com. You can subscribe to our Patreon. Just search Lady History. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lexi B Draws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, it's Thursday and we're talking about the daughters of Mother Earth. Stocks is just astrology and tarot for straight men. You're not wrong. Thank you for coming to my Devar Torah. The gals and the gays have astrology. (laughs) That's not a Devar Torah. That was just a TED Talk. But guess what? We're on Patreon. Tiers start at just $1 a month. And we have three of them. Become a brilliant backer for $1. Find out early about new merch and ticketed events and get access to our monthly newsletter.
support our show by becoming a confident contributor for $4 a month. In addition to the benefits from the previous tier, you get access to our Discord community and one bonus episode every Sunday. Or lastly, prove that you love us the most by becoming a sensational super fan for $7. In addition to the benefits from the previous tiers, get access to a monthly interactive live stream with one of us and get the power to decide future Lady History content by voting. Join our community and help us keep the show running at patreon.com slash ladyhistorypod. Woohoo, we did it.